You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I'm Mark Feinsand, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Before we get to this week's episode, a word from our sponsor. Erectile dysfunction is more common than you might think. 52% of men over 40 will experience ED at some point, and about 75% of those men don't seek treatment. That's why Roman makes it easy to get expert treatment from a U.S. licensed physician all online. No judgment, no hassle, no hours spent in the waiting room. With Roman, you get expert medical care for ED right in the comfort and privacy of your own home. Everything is online, so it's convenient and discreet to contact a doctor about prescription medication. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com major and complete an online visit with your medical history and symptoms. A licensed physician will evaluate your online visit and let you know within 24 hours if medication is right for you. If prescribed by the doctor, Roman delivers genuine medication right to your door with free two-day shipping. Just go to GetRoman.com major to get a free online visit and a free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com major to get started with a free online visit. That's GetRoman.com major. Mike Elias began his career as an area scout for the St. Louis Cardinals, moving to the Houston Astros when Jeff Luno took over as general manager. In Houston, Elias ran the club's amateur scouting department, playing a major role in the Astros' rebuild that led to the team's first World Series title in 2017. Elias joined the Baltimore Orioles last November as executive vice president and general manager, embarking on another major rebuilding project. I sat down with Elias to discuss amateur scouting, player development, the difficulties of going through a rebuild, and much more. Enjoy this conversation with Orioles Executive Vice President and General Manager, Mike Elias. Mike, thanks for joining me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Uh, you grew up in Alexandria, Virginia, not too far from D.C. The Nationals didn't exist uh, during your childhood. They didn't come into play until you were in your 20s. Were you an Orioles fan growing up? Yeah, from Northern Virginia, um, you know, I to, I can't say it was like bleeding black and orange, but that was, that was the local team, and, and really it was about... Cal Ripken um, and and the teams at that time and uh, certainly you know when you're growing up a baseball fan in that area um, when you wanted to go see a major league game you get in the car and you drive up here and you go to Camden Yards and I have vivid memories of that uh, the stadium was very new it was a, a new experience this type of stadium and um, you know the place was packed. Now one of the more interesting nuggets I found out about you was researching this is your father was a secret service agent mm-hmm. that's not a job most kids have running in their family. Did you get to experience any kind of cool stuff uh, when you were a kid, thanks to your dad's job? Yeah, um, it, it it really uh, it really was kind of neat. Um, you know, getting to uh, go on White House tours, and he would travel to exotic locations and, and bring things back when he was traveling with the president. Um, and it was just kind of fun. And, and really, my um, big takeaway from it was um, he loved his work and it excited him and he never felt like he was working even though he had a job to do and he was working a lot so it it made me you know appreciate uh the value in that and i think was um part of the reason that steered me towards trying to get a job in baseball you pitched for yale university uh four years did you ever have aspirations of giving a pro career a try yeah i think everyone does Playing college baseball, um, you know, I, I was a, a left-handed pitcher, and I, I had some field to pitch a little bit, but I didn't throw real hard, um, so it was kind of a long shot, you know, maybe the kind of thing where if you have a nice college career, you, you end up being a senior sign, but, um, you know, looking back now with the scouting perspective and, and uh, expertise I have, I'm not sure how realistic it was, but, it, you know, it ended up putting me on a pathway to, to doing this. You had surgery to repair a torn labrum while you were there. Mm-hmm. Do you think that experience helps you relate to players when they are dealing with major injuries of their own? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. Uh, I can't imagine how how hard it is um, for elite athletes when um, you know their livelihood depends on it. You know, I was a I was a college kid and I was going to a good school, and you know, even though it derailed my baseball career, I knew it wasn't going to be the end of the world um, and career-wise and I also was able to use the time off from that injury to kind of start building towards um, the front office career but uh, you know it's very jarring and difficult for these guys especially when they're in the minor leagues and you know their hopes or dreams are making it up here and then suddenly there's a major injury that really threatens that but it did give me some perspective for um, 
the ups and downs of a rehab, how it's not kind of a linear, smooth path. Um, and also you feel uh, a little isolated. You're not with your teammates all the time. You're in the training room doing your own thing. The team's off playing games. So it, it can be really tough for an athlete. I've seen you said that reading Moneyball sort of opened your eyes to the idea that you could work in baseball in a front office without having played uh, when you had that injury and you were rehabbing, is that when that really started to sort of churn in your head as something you thought about as a career? Yeah, it was exactly the same time. And I, I, almost anyone you talk to that's sort of my age um, who is working in the sport now, that book had some type of effect on them. Um, you know, it was just such a huge book. Um, and uh, I came away with it more interested in the, the scouting uh, side of it. Um, I'd always had interest in, in kind of as a pitcher sitting in the dugout, um, just watching the other players and evaluating the other players. And to me, the, um, the interplay between uh, the scouting info and the new information that was becoming available via college statistics mainly um, was very interesting. And then, you know, at that point in time, a couple of teams, notably the Cardinals, were looking for some uh, less experienced scouts who, you know, could, could kind of grow into the job. And, and so I looked into uh, some opportunity there. Your first uh, job in baseball actually was with the Phillies, I think, right? You had an internship there that your coach from yeah. Yale helped you get. How did that come about, and what, what did that involve? Uh, I, I hurt my arm, and in uh, the Ivy League conference, they don't let you play as grad students. So the athletes who want to play all four years of their eligibility have two choices. They can either um, Miss the year and then play their fifth year at a different institution. So basically transfer to be a fifth year senior, a redshirt senior, or you can take a full leave of absence from school. So that's the usual course. So like if a football player blows out his knee, but he wants to play all four years, he'll take a year of year leave of absence from class and then come back and you're essentially a fifth year senior. So I did that and I wanted to do something um, productive with the time other than rehab, you know, knowing that I wasn't going to be playing pro ball. Um, I wanted to get in this business. Um, I asked my coach, John Stuper, who was a former major league pitcher, hey, do you, you got any, you know, help you can lend or ideas? And um, he said that um, the traveling secretary for the Philadelphia Phillies, a guy named Frank Kopenbarger, um, who I'm still in touch with today, um, works you know, he used to be the Cardinals uh, traveling secretary. Um, and he's like, I know him. I can send him your resume. He can put it uh, in front of the guy who runs the intern program. And he did that. Um, and fortunately for me, it was the year that the Phillies were moving from uh, Veterans Stadium to Citizens Bank Park. So they could kind of use all the help they could get. Um, and I, uh, I went there that fall and um, sold tickets over the phone. And, um, you know, in, in spare time kind of cleaned out closets and things in, in Veterans Stadium. And, uh, you know, it was just the first time around a front office, great experience, first paycheck in baseball, got my resume rolling, and it was just really exciting to, you know, come into a stadium every day um, when you're that age to work. Now, as you're starting to think about a front office career, I'm sure you're watching other you know, front offices. That people didn't cover front offices back then necessarily the way they do now, but were there any executives that you kind of admired from afar as you were watching the landscape of the game? Well, um, you know, there was like a whole, uh, uh, you know, generation of guys kind of coming up at that time. Um, but, you know, certainly the, uh, the, the Kevin Towers, uh, Brian Sabian, uh, uh, Brian Cashman, th those were the, the big names back in the early 2000s, obviously Billy Bean. Um, and they all did things differently. And I, I would read as much as I could about uh, the types of philosophies they had and the way that they built their staffs and, and viewed the game. And obviously so much transition has happened since then, but those guys have found a way to continue to be successful through all those years. I, I find that very interesting, you know, just the openness to different information streams that the successful executives have. And, you know, even in my short, um, whatever it is, 14, 13 years now, um, so much has changed. And, it, you know, I, I feel like a, a dinosaur sometimes. So it's, it's impressive to me um, how these guys um, manage these huge organizations that are so dynamic. When a first-year GM was talking about feeling like a dinosaur, that's, <laughs> yeah. uh, that's quite a thing to think about where the industry goes and sort of how fast it moves. Right? Yeah, yeah, especially now. The last five years have really um, been incredibly uh, uh, dynamic. There's just been so much change. 
John Stuper once described you as off the charts smart. Who's the smartest person you've been around in baseball? Craig Breslow, the uh, um, former uh, relief pitcher. Um, Another Yale guy. He's now working for the Cubs. Yeah, and, um, you know, he uh, he was a senior when I was a freshman there. Um, and there were a whole bunch of smart guys on that team. John Stites, who was a third-round pick of the Brewers um, and is now uh, working um, as a, a lawyer for McKinsey out in San Francisco. Uh, Matt McCarthy, who um, wrote a pretty, pretty uh, widespread book about the minor leagues called uh, Odd Men Out. Um, and he played in uh, the Angels system. So um, there were a bunch of really smart guys who were also really good baseball players in that team. But I think, um, I think Brez has to take the crown. You mentioned you joined the Cardinals in 2007 as a scout. Is scouting something you can learn, or does it have to be something that, to some extent, comes naturally to a person? I think there has to be a, a, a little bit of a, a natural eye, but um, I have seen so many people from so many different walks of life become really good scouts that uh, I'm pretty convinced it's something that that you can apply yourself to and, and really uh, learn a lot of. Now, I think there has to be an internal um, drive to do it. And like I said, some type of eye for movement patterns or um, just sizing up people. Um, but, um, you know, there, there, there have been um, the, the varied backgrounds of people that have had really good scouting careers is something fascinating to me. You mentioned sizing up people. Obviously, you have to have talent for it to matter. But is, is scouting a player's makeup, especially an amateur player, is that almost as important as what his fastball looks like or, or you know, what kind of hitting tools he has? Yeah, it's hugely important. Um, I mean, so, some of our um, biggest mistakes and biggest positive surprises in this business are because of the makeup of the player. Um, and, you know, judging and predicting human behavior is not an exact science. Um, I think that overall we do pretty well with it as an industry, but there's still a lot of mistakes made. But, yeah, there are, are scouts that um, – I can't believe how well they get makeup right without even meeting or talking with the kid, just kind of watching him go about his business and play one game. Um, and um, I, I think it's something that's accrued with a lot of experience. In an interview with Fangraphs about five years ago, you said that being an area scout is the best way to learn this job. When you think back to your time in that job, what did, what was your biggest takeaway from that that's helped you as you move forward? It, you get to do so much. You're, you're evaluating players first and foremost. Um, but you, uh, you're on your own, um, so you, you have to learn to self-organize and, and self-start. Um, you deal with a lot of people, coaches, other scouts, uh, players, their families. But also you get, you get experience dealing with agents really quickly, and you get negotiating experience. You actually sign players, so you go through um, the, um, the, I mean, literally living and dying every night with that kid's box score. Um, and, you know, when you're an area scout, it can be a 24th round senior that you give $1,000 to and you're still thinking your job's on the line with every bat. So it kind of builds up your um, resistance to the ups and downs of, of the sport that we all go through. And, you know, we all make mistakes with the players that we choose and sign. Um, but uh, I, I just I, I think it was a very uh, uh, multifaceted um, experience in terms of dealing with with uh, people, but also evaluating players, writing reports, getting real experience, making decisions and making mistakes. Is that when you're dealing with agents as an area scout and then years later you're dealing with some of those same agents in this role you're in now, do you think back to the time we maybe first met them? Does it ever come up, you know, that you that you do have some experience with these people you know, through the years as far back as being an area scout? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, there, are, there are people um, that... Um, um, I first talked to when I was a, an area scout that I still um, deal with today. And then, you know, as you kind of progress through the scouting ranks and you're cross-checking or you're a scouting director, eventually you end up, you know, touching every agent and agency. And it, it comes in handy. I mean, you, you do need to uh, have, you know, have relationships with these guys. Um, they're a big part of the business. And, you know, we're on different sides of the fence, but um, we try to deal with each other reasonably and, and you know, realizing that um, the, any disagreements we have aren't personal. It's just everyone's representing the interests that they're hired to represent. So, you know, it, those relationships help. I was going to say, it, it seems like people think about the agents and executives as being an adversarial relationship, but really the relationship you have with them can help you a lot more if it's a good relationship. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I would imagine it's similar between um, uh, prosecutors and defense attorneys that run into each other every day and, and you know, um, bicker over things when they're in the course of, of doing business. But you realize that um, everyone's just doing their their job. And um, I think the fact that we know that we have to deal with one another the next time around, you know, is, is helpful. But um, yeah, certainly um, there are relationships there. There's a lot of good information that one side gets from the other and vice versa. And uh, it's uh, an important part of the business. So are you the prosecutor or the defense attorney? <laughs> well, I guess it depends on your perspective. <laughs> uh, 2011, you're still with the Cardinals. They win the World Series. The following year, you go to the Astros. Uh they had lost 100 the year before. They ended up losing 218 games over your first two seasons there uh, with Jeff Luno. Was it difficult to go from a successful franchise headfirst into a rebuild to the extent that it was? Yeah, it was uh, It was such a whirlwind. You know, we were with St. Louis, and at the time, at least we felt like St. Louis was kind of one of the model franchises, you know, with the way that uh, Bill DeWitt um, continues to run that franchise and where we were at the time. Uh, prime Albert Pujols, the, the farm system was stocked. Um, we won, in the, won that World Series, which was kind of a lucky run, barely made it in, um, and then went on this incredible World Series run and um, won it. And then uh, Jeff got the GM job with the Astros a couple weeks later, and uh, it was it moved very fast. Um, and um, Sig, Mydell, and I were two of his first hires we, we followed him to St. Louis um, and it was my first time kind of going from one organization to another and it's um, exhilarating but it's it is really jarring and it takes a couple of months to get your pronouns straight you the, the we and the they and the you uh, takes a few few months to get out of your system um, but um, yeah it was a, a really unique opportunity um, to uh, kind of um, build an organization almost from scratch. I mean, not totally, um, but the, uh, you know, new owner, the um, attendance was down, the the uh, major league team was was down, the, the farm system wasn't ranked highly. And, um, you know, it was uh, still in the early days of a lot of the uh, quantitative practices that are now real common. At that time, there's probably only like six or seven teams that were really um, going all in with that. So there was still an opportunity to um, extract a lot of advantage from that. And um, Jeff and Sig and I worked really quickly to get that, that stuff in place. Your bio with the Astros referred to you as the, quote, driving force, unquote. I'm sure you've heard that several times. Uh, behind the selection of Carlos Correa uh, with the 1-1 pick in 2012. How difficult was that process, given that he was not? I think most, most publications had him ranked as the sixth or seventh guy in that draft. Yeah, it was really uh, um, a risky pick at the time or perceived to be. Um, and uh, it, it was a perfect storm because of the new draft system um, where you realized, hey, if we don't pay the number one pick full slot, we're going to have more money than everyone else in the next couple of rounds. Um, and here's this guy that might be the best player out of this draft class, but everyone thinks he's going sixth or seventh. And he thinks he's going sixth or seventh. And um, I had just happened to uh, see him a lot. I was living in Florida with the Cardinals and doing Puerto Rico for a couple of years and doing all those tournaments in Florida. And he was there, and you just could see him growing. His body was changing. Um, and I saw him do some really freakish stuff, um, both defensively and just some balls he hit that you just don't see young teenagers hit balls that hard or hit, hit them to those parts of the park. Um, and I just happened to be there for the right games and um, just had a gut feel about what he was going to turn into. And, um, you know, we had a tough choice that year. There were some good college pitchers. Um, Zunino, Mike Zunino was like the, the safe college bat. And um, Buxton, Brian Byron Buxton was this um, huge five-tool talent. But uh, we just felt really drawn towards uh, Correa um, he just felt like he was our guy, and when we were able to get him for $4.8 million and realized we were going to have this war chest to take into the rest of the draft, it was um, it just felt like the right move. When you've seen a player since he was 14, 15 years old, and you've seen him grow and develop the way you did with Correa, do you almost 
get some sort of attachment to that player, knowing that you've sort of, quote-unquote, been with him since the beginning? Yeah, I mean, when you like him that much, yes. Uh, you can get a very uh, deep-seated gut feel. I mean, scouts use that term all the time. Um, and um, as a decision-maker, if you're the GM or the scouting director, you have to learn to read your guys and know when, when they're really feeling it and when to listen to them. And some of the best picks that I've seen made over the years um, are not because of um, stats or a draft model. It's because um, a one scout is really sticking his neck out and the decision maker trusts him in this particular instance. And sometimes that guy's wrong the next time. But, you know, there is, there is when that feeling um, comes out and comes out in a strong way, there's something there. And I just don't know that we can quantify that necessarily. August of 2016, you're promoted to assistant GM in Houston, which has been open since David Stern's left from Milwaukee. What did that promotion mean to you at the time? Um, well, I was really um, focused on the draft and uh, being the amateur scouting director, and it was so important to what we were doing, and I enjoyed it, and it's all I really knew. Um, but there were starting to be um, hints of a lot of changes on the player development um, landscape. Jeff... Um, was struggling a little bit to structure that department and um, find somebody to lead the department who would stimulate the change rather than you know maybe um, slow play it. And so he asked me to take over um, both of those, and um, so I did. And I you know I have much less uh, functional expertise in that space, but. Um, you know, had been around baseball long enough to, um, you know, have a feel for for coaches and and what they do and um, how to best promote or demote or you know release players in the minor leagues and those types of decisions. So, felt like I was ready for it. He wanted me to do it, um, and um, you know, I, I I did it, and um, it ended up being. Uh, a great experience because it was right at the forefront of what ended up being like a, um, a revolution in, in player development. So I got to kind of a front row seat for that. When when you promoted you, Jeff referred to you as one of the most capable baseball executives he's known. You worked for him for a long time. What did you learn most working for Jeff? Um, you know, I get this question a lot and it's hard for me to uh, uh, distill it into a couple of things because up until now he's really the only boss that I've consistently had. Um, so so much of what I do has been informed by him. Um, but he um, has a um, uh, he's very good at hiring people. Um, he uh, goes through uh, good hiring processes um, when there's a job open. You know, we don't think uh, who do I know that I can give this job to. We we try to find the best people. And um, once he's made a hire, um, he really stays out of their way, but is available for them and provides them with the support and resources that they need. And if it doesn't work out, you know, he'll, he'll, he'll move on to uh, another choice. But um, he, he has a, a very good um, instinct um, for people, for uh, structures. And uh, I think the thing that has most um, contributed to his success is he is always uh, looking forward, even when it's uncomfortable to do so. Um, and um, we're never, we've never been caught flat-footed under his watch because of that. And he pushes all of us, um, you know, to do things that are that are uncomfortable, even when things are going well, just so that we're better positioned for two years from now. What's the biggest challenge in player development in this current era of baseball? Oh boy! Well, um, it, you know, it, <laughs> loaded question. Yeah, being a, a farm director is um, tough because in the middle of the night, you've just got to be ready for things. Um, guys get in trouble. Um, they they roll an ankle in the twelfth inning, and we got to fly another player up to replace them. So you're never really able to um, shut off um, in in that job. Um, but now the um, the frustrations come mostly when um, you know we expect these players to just improve linearly, just get better and better, and then these guys have down years, and you're like, what's going on? What can we do? Uh, it can be a very helpless, frustrating feeling, um, and it's always happening with one player or another. So you kind of feel like whack a mole, you know, trying to um, fix the guys that are that are struggling. But yeah, it's a it's a really tough job. It's probably one of the toughest jobs in baseball, running the minor leagues. At what point during the rebuild in Houston? 
did you personally feel like everything was starting to turn and fall into place? Um, well, we, you know, we, we, it, it was a rough road the first few years in 2014 in particular, we had a lot of bad luck with stuff and, you know, it was, uh, it got pretty, um, pretty heated there. Um, but we had markers along the way that made us feel like we were doing things at least directionally correct. And, you know, the farm system rankings kept going up and the minor league teams were winning a lot. And there was just a lot of positive stories coming out of the minor leagues. Um, and so we knew that the cavalry was coming in that regard. Um, I do remember, um, you know, Jeff made some moves after the 2014 season um, with a focus on the big league team for the first time. You know, we traded um, Rio Ruiz and, and uh, Mike Fultonevich um, uh, for um, Evan Gaddis and, you know, a couple other moves, signed some relievers, and the team kind of popped. It, you know, uh, went on a huge uh, April-May start, banked a bunch of wins, and in 2015, all of a sudden, the team had a different vibe and energy to it, and, and A.J. Hinch was there for the first year. Um, and um, I do remember being in, in Arizona. Um, we were losing the game, but whoever else we were competing with for that second wild card spot, I can't remember who it was, um, they lost, and... It clinched a playoff berth for us, and I was sitting next to Jeff and saw it on my phone, and it was a, a, a moment that I, I won't forget just because of um, how far off that seemed when we first got there and, and all the ups and downs that had happened to that point. You mentioned 2014, some things had gone wrong. Uh, one memorable moment of 2014 was a certain Sports Illustrated cover that came out. Did that put more pressure on you guys when all of a sudden – People are not just noticing that you guys are heading in the right direction, but declaring that you're going to be winning the World Series three years from now. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't real popular, uh, nor was it with us. And, and it, you know, lesson learned there that sometimes the, the, you know, the editors choose the headlines, not the writer and certainly not the people that are being written about. Um, and, you know, they do stuff that's going to sell magazines. And if you read that article... Um, you know, we were merely expressing that we were process-oriented, we were focused on the future... Um, we're going to make mistakes, but you know, over time, we're hopeful that this will this will take us where we need to go. Uh, but obviously, you know, there was a lot of focus on um, the the 2017 headline that ended up ended so up being ben look like a genius. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was uh, one of the memorable moments of 2017. But now I'm glad that that ex- that magazine exists because it's nice to have a copy of it. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, we did an entire podcast last year looking at the events that led up to the, the Astros trade for Justin Verlander. Seemed like a pretty crazy night from all angles. What do you remember most about that night? Well, I wasn't um, much of a part of it. Uh, I, I was at home. Um, it was the August uh, waiver deadline, so the, the, it was a, a midnight deadline. And I was watching TV in my house and texting with um, Jeff and Brandon Todman and Kevin Goldstein um, for updates. And... Um, you know, with like five minutes to go, it didn't look like it was going to happen. I guess Verlander was thinking about it. Um, and then um, uh, two minutes after the deadline, um, Todman texted to the group, nope, we got him. So, you know, he the trade got approved at the last second. He changed his mind or whatever. Um, so I don't have a lot of inside knowledge on that, but I remember being excited about it. And then immediately I had to call Jake Rogers and, and Daz Cameron and, and uh, Franklin Perez and the, the guys that we, we traded to go over there, even though it was middle of the night. But, you know, for kids today, they, they've already read that stuff on Twitter by the time right. they get a hold of them. So, that you know, that's, they're already going through the roller coaster. Uh, I've had some people who were with the Astros at the time tell me that 2015, winning that wild card game at Yankee Stadium was, you know, as high as they'd ever been in terms of a career highlight. Yet, two years later, as this incredible playoff run, you win the World Series – um, you get, you know, clubhouse celebration, parades, et cetera. What was it like going through that 2017 run, having been there for five years and really gone through, uh, you know, the downs of a rebuild? Um, yeah, you know, the, 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 the 15, like I said, getting in the wild card um, and then that, that win over the Yankees and even um, kind of looking like we were going to get past uh, Kansas City, um, you, you just you couldn't believe it because we were just so used to being an awful team, and then all of a sudden we were doing that. Um, twenty seventeen was a little different feel because we had a bad year in twenty sixteen relatively, and it kind of toughened everyone up, and I think gave the team a lot of resolve that hey, we're better than this. We expect to be a good team now, 
and um, we made some moves prior to the year to, to fortify the team. And then um, getting Verlander at the deadline, it was like, okay, we've got a juggernaut um, going into the playoffs. And so the expectations were a lot higher. Um, and But it was some of the most incredible playoff baseball um, I've been a part of, and that includes what um, – you know the the, the Cardinals uh, games of 2011, just the back and forth um, with the Yankees and the Red Sox, and then that incredible series with the Dodgers. So I mean, at that point, we're, we're you know we're just spectators for for all that, um, and uh, you just see these uh, unbelievable athletes and and competitors um, just on the biggest stage, and you, you, just watching that up close is it's really impressive what these players do. It must be kind of an odd feeling, whereas during the course of the season. You're watching the games and and thinking about how to improve the team, how to uh, you know deal with certain situations, injuries that come up, etc. Once you get to the postseason, especially the World Series, at least in the first two rounds, you can always look at maybe what you can do differently if you advance. Once you get to the World Series, you're just eating popcorn and watching the games like everybody else. Yeah, it's a lot of fun, but it, it's nerve wracking. Certainly, um, like really, games like the World fans. Series is yeah. nerve wracking, and, and, and <laughs> your, your instinct kicks in where you want to try to do something. So. I think other front offices probably do the same thing. We get uh, superstitious about where we're sitting and what tie we're wearing and silly stuff like that. But you just want to feel like you have some involvement. But yeah, we're just watching, and, and you know, it's all about the players and um, and uh, just to really see what they do that deep into the year and how hard they compete and how um, at such a high level um, up close um, is is it's fun to watch. So you're more than a decade into your career between the Cardinals and the Astros, been a scouting director, assistant GM. Was being a GM always the goal for you? Uh, no, I, you know, I, I would always felt like a, a scout. My goal was to be more of a, of a scouting director, um, and um, that was really the, the only uh, goal to which I, I, I really aspired. I think I, I would have been happy and would continue to be happy um, doing, doing scouting in some capacity. For, for my whole career. So you get the Orioles job uh, last November. When you when you took the job, you said you wanted to build an elite talent pipeline, um, which is obviously what you guys did in Houston. Is developing your own stars, developing your own players, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe more important now than it's ever been, given a lot of teams have money, a lot of players don't get to free agency anymore. It's not like you can really solve your problems with free agency the way that you maybe once had to, or could. Does that make drafting and developing or, or, or signing international players and developing them even more important now that it's been? Absolutely, and, and everyone appreciates it now, so everyone's trying to do it. And it's, um, it's, it's really turned uh, the league into a big scouting and player development contest right now because those young players are so valuable. Player development has gotten so good. College baseball has gotten so good that these guys are, are getting to the big leagues quicker. They're getting the big leagues better and you're extracting so much out of these young players that um, this is an area of emphasis um, for everyone, but certainly um, for a team like the Orioles in the division that we're in, in the, the, the market environment that we're in, this is a, a, an area, it's not gonna be everything, but we need to be really, really healthy in the, in the talent pipeline. Shortly after you were hired, you posted what appeared to be your first tweet ever. Uh, you'd had an account for several years, but you'd never actually tweeted. And you tweeted a link to open jobs, and you wrote, the Orioles are hiring. I have to imagine that led to quite a wide variety of applicants. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, you know, I don't Cause know. Because everybody on Twitter <laughs> thinks they're a better GM than the 30, 30 of you. So Yeah, they might be. But, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're going through um, a lot of changes right now. Um, and um, there are a lot of new jobs um, here, but also around the industry. Um, you know, I think if you pulled uh, media guides from 10 years ago and read them, um, the, the types of positions are a lot different than there are now, and that's um, how things go and things evolve. And um, we are in the process right now. You know, it's, it's um, September, and we're in the process of preparing a whole bunch of job postings right now, um, new jobs that have never existed with this franchise before, um, and we're going to cast the net as, as wide as possible. So, um, you know, it's, it's uh, a big part of... Um, front office jobs now is, is hiring and, and searching and it's getting more and more challenging because the skills necessary kind of exist outside of the baseball world. You've got to go out into, um, you know, data science and um, sports medicine, sports science. You're looking at people who are from 
um, university backgrounds, and it requires a lot more um, uh, resources in order to find and, and uh, attract these people. The other thing I noticed looking at your Twitter account, on April 4th, which I'm assuming was maybe your home opener or sometime during that week, you tweeted a photo of yourself over at Boog's Barbecue yeah. with the words, Barbecue Upgrade, and you cc <laughs> Jeff Luno on there. Did you enjoy sort of being a Twitter troll for one moment there? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Boog's is, 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 Boog's is legit. I recommend it to everybody who comes to Cannon Yards. We also have one in Sarasota. Um, I am a big, uh, I'm a big meat eater um, and uh, certainly got into barbecue in, in, uh, in Houston. So um, it was uh, nice to, to get here and have, a, have an option like that right, right behind me in the warehouse. So after you get hired by the Orioles, it's actually after the GM meetings have taken place. Did you feel like you were playing catch up a little bit there? Uh, you know, the, the GM meeting is usually a good spot for for all the GMs to sort of take the temperature of other teams and start figuring stuff out. And, and you didn't start until after those were over. Yeah, a little bit. Um, we, we came in and, and had so much to do right away, and um, really, you know, the, the the major league coaching staff was vacant. So, ha- you know, you need a manager and you need major league coaches. So I had to get to work on that right away, um, but also had some areas of emergency. Um, in analytics and in um, international scouting, where we were behind, um, are behind, and you know needed to get that rolling right away. So, um, fortunately for me, I knew Sig was available. I knew Sig was the best in the business, um, and I knew that with our relationship and going back to two different organizations, you know he he would come with me if I if I got one of these jobs. Um, so I was able to scoop him up and very quickly and, and allow him to get rolling on, on building out that staff and the tools that we're going to need. And then internationally, um, you know, put some uh, work into looking around the league, um, who might be the right person to, you know, it's not just any old um, international scouting job because we're kind of starting from, from um, scratch. You're going to need instant credibility and connections in that market. Um, you're going to need to kind of change the face of the Orioles in that market. And um, Kobe Perez, who was working for the Indians, really checked all those boxes uh, because he was such a, a known quantity in, uh, in the international sphere for, for 10 years with the Indians and the Phillies. Um, you know, bilingual, um, very well respected and trusted, not just by um, agents, but by other teams in the league. Um, and, you know, he has very quickly kind of established our presence and has, has gotten us going. And then, you know, the rest of it, um, yeah, we're deep into the winter. It puts you in a little tougher spot with minor league free agents. You know, some of them are off the board and um, all that. But, you know, it's okay. Sometimes it, um, I think getting a, a job late like that, it prevents you from trying to do too much right away. And, um, you know, so we, we uh, proceeded through this year as, as best we could. And this year we're having a little more time to plan and um, – you know, uh, move with some um, more uh, care. I can't remember if it was Thad Levine or Derek Falvey. One of them said that when they first, when they took over in Minnesota and you just jump right into the offseason, it's like drinking from a fire hose. Yeah. Is that a good analogy for sort of everything that you have to take care of in such a short amount of time? Yeah, it's uh, the hours just fly by in the day and, and you can't keep up with your correspondence at all. Um, and, um you know, you're the. Um, meanwhile, you're you're moving. Your family's moving. Um, so it, it's 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 a lot. But you um, you figure out a way to focus on what you need to do to kind of move the ball down the field. And um, yeah, that the, the comfort level grows um, with time pretty quickly. I've had some GMs tell me they really enjoy the process of conducting a manager search. I've had others say they dread it. What was your experience like? Uh, I, I thought it was great. You know, I'd been through. Um, two of them with the Astros prior to this. So we, um, I mean, we talked to so many people um, on the phone, but we had six in-person interviews here, Um, but they weren't my first six. I'd probably been in on a total of like 20 or 25 um, manager interviews prior to that. So I'd had some um, perspective of what feels like a good one, what feels like a bad one, and then what ended up happening. Um, And, it was sort of a blessing and a curse that we were um, the last team to interview this past year. Um, but the blessing part of it was that the teams that had just completed their interviews, the five other teams that had just hired um, managers, they were you know perfectly willing to share their notes from the interview process. So I was dealing with a short amount of time. 
but I think we're able to shortcut the process a little bit by getting everyone's finalist lists um, from the other five teams. Um, and um, we had a great interview process, very extensive. Um, Sig and I mostly handled it. Um, the thing that always impresses me is um, you realize how these guys got to their point in their careers where they're interviewing for manager spots because they're so impressive in one way, shape, or form or another. You, you almost never get a dud when you're when you're managing a major. I mean, sorry, when you're interviewing a major league manager position. It's just these are coaches that are at the top of their field. Um, so we were so impressed with everybody, but uh, you know, ultimately, Brendan Hyde, with the uh, unique experiences that he had had with the Cubs and the Marlins prior to that, um, you know, checked so many boxes from a resume standpoint, but also felt like somebody that we'd have a good working relationship with and sort of the right guy for this team. You mentioned that the Orioles were behind analytically compared to other franchises. Did you guys view this situation as an opportunity to basically? build that department from the ground up and, and mold it exactly as you, you saw fit? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I will be careful to say it wasn't like they were doing nothing, um, but they'd had some prominent departures right before we had left. Um, and certainly the, the size and shape um, and influence over the rest of the organization that the analytics department can and should have, that was not in place and that didn't exist. Um, so we came here um, one of the great things about Sig is he's a very practical worker, so he's able to, um, uh, you know, achieve short-term goals in a pretty quick amount of time, get us some kind of minimum viable product pretty quickly, um, and get us up on our feet. And um, you know, he hired some good people. Um, we had one really good web developer who was already here named Diju, and luckily he was in place already. Um, and so I think what we have done in that department um, to catch up and then hopefully position ourselves to kind of join the arms race, so to speak, um, in, in a 10-month uh, amount of time has, has been more than I would have hoped for. All accounts from spring training and, and during the season was that your players bought in pretty quickly on a lot of the analytic stuff that you were giving them. Uh, a, how important is it for that to be the case where players are willing to buy in? And B, how important is it to be able to translate some of the information that you're trying to get across to them in language that, that they can relate to? Yeah, the second part's the, the toughest nowadays um, because I, there is a skill to coaching and knowing your audience and you know how Joey or Johnny uh, receives info and what type of info works the best for him and how to sell him on it and when to present him with the info do you do it after you went over four with four strikeouts or do you wait till the next morning or you know th those types of decisions and that's what coaches do and what good coaches are good at um the buy-in has changed so much um since when when jeff was running the astros and we were the most aggressive shifting team um and the pitchers were up in arms every time a ball would go through the shift and you know there was it was a big conundrum how do we Get these guys understand this is in their best interest, um, and the um, the use of TrackMan to inform your attack plans that was experimental at the time. Um, but now there is so much success to point to, whether it's the Astros or the Dodgers or all around the league. That I find now that the players, um, it's almost a reverse dynamic. Like they're like, "Hey, front office, this is your job. We're going out there and playing the Dodgers, the Astros, the Yankees, or the Indians, or uh, the Rays." Um, you know, we want to we want to be able to tangle with these guys. You know, help us out. So um, the buy-in part of it has has gone away on a on a grand scale. But yeah, there are there's still a lot of skill and nuance to individual coaching decisions and, and how to um, how to ration the info to players or whether to ration the info to players. And it feels like this generation of players is exposed to it a lot earlier as well, right? I mean, the minor leagues, colleges. Mm -hmm using TrackMan, using high-speed cameras or pitchers. This is not like people are getting to the big leagues and seeing it for the first time. This, this generation of players who's coming up, it seems like it's just part of what they do now. Yeah, at the youth level, too. I mean, like, you go to a, a batting cage now, um, and they've got cameras, they've got TrackMan, they have uh, wearable vests. Um, you know, so th this stuff is uh, part of the culture um, of amateur baseball all the way through college and the minor leagues. So I think this um, transition, you know, uh, into this uh, technological era of player development, it's going to stop being a transition pretty soon and just be the way things are. Where do you think analytics has made a bigger impact 
with players and their approaches on the field and, and in-game strategy stuff or with the way front offices make their decisions? Um, I think um, the impact in terms of the way front offices make their decisions is more complete or thorough like that. You know, we're all trying to do more or less the same thing right now with um, how we make decisions and how we justify decisions and, you know, even in the draft. But the, um, the player development and um, uh, advanced scouting, meaning, you know, how you're going to play tonight's game aspect of it is still uh, probably a more of an evolutionary phase. But by the time that's over, um, it may, it may uh, outstrip what, what went on at the front office level. Now that all 30 teams have caught up, obviously to varying extents in the analytic front, how much pressure is there to find that next advantage, that next competitive advantage? And what do you think that might be? Or have you already found it and you're not going to tell me? It's, 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 it's a lot of pressure because I've seen how powerful they are once you do find them. Um, and it directly led uh, to um, the Cardinals' run that we were on a ride for. It directly led to the Astros' run um, that they're still on. And, um, you know, I can, I can point to work that happened behind the scenes that directly led to those teams becoming dominant teams for a few years. And I have no doubt that somebody else somewhere, if they haven't already, is going to find something else that's that strong and, and figure out a way to use it for a couple of years before everyone else catches up. Um, and if I knew what it was, I wouldn't wouldn't be saying it right now. But um, you know, we're we're not um, um, ignorant to the fact of how great all these other front offices and teams um, and the division that we're in and the resources that other teams have. And it's something that, that we worry about, but we just we have to plug away every day and just keep doing what we're doing and and, and work the right way. And, and hopefully, we'll we'll find something. The Correa pick obviously worked out great for the Astros. You guys drafted Bregman with the number two pick in 2015, but a couple of high-profile top picks, Brady Aiken, Mark Appel, didn't work out as well. How difficult is the process when you have the number one pick or, or even a top five pick? Um, it, it's it's very it's it's a gut wrenching process because you realize how important these decisions are, and you go back and look at drafts from six seven years ago. Oh my gosh, if they had just taken so. But at the time, it is not obvious, and um, you uh, you can poke holes in all of the players at the top of the draft. Um, it is never other than a few years, you know, Alex Rodriguez and a couple of these years, Steven Strasburg, you know, that where it's just unanimous every. My trap. No wait, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, it goes to show, but uh, <laughs> it, it's it's difficult. Um, but um, at the end of the day, you uh, try to make the best decision you can. You do as much prep work as you can, and you try to play the odds. And um, you know, we did have um, a failure there. We had some really bad luck in, in another one of the cases. Um, and but you know, you you learn from that, and um, the mistakes that you made that led to those. You be sure to include them in your in your process going forward. When you came to Baltimore, you knew you had one one in your first year here. You said the decision to take Adley Rodgman was a tough one. You had about thirty people in the draft room offering differing opinions. How do you ultimately make that final call? Um, you uh, you look at all the information in front of you. You listen to all the scouts and evaluators that you've had involved, and um, you ultimately make what feels to be the right move but we we do um, have a process where we I don't want to say we can quantify what our organizational opinion is but we have a little bit more of a systematic way of weighting all the info and everyone's opinions but it still ends up very close and um, that's why you get these different opinions you know ultimately um, with him being a dominant college bat that offers defense at a premium position with uh, really good makeup and really good head on his shoulders, um, you know it was it was tough to pass, um, and so we went in that direction and and feel good about it. Um, and a big part of being the number one pick is being the number one pick, and so he's going to have to handle a little bit more pressure and attention um, than the guy that went number two or three or whatever. Um, and so you have to factor in how that player um, will will handle that and it's definitely one of the things that I've learned and, and we think he's extremely well equipped for that because of the way he handled the pressure of being the presumptive number one pick all year and you know um, leading 
Oregon State's to its championships and, and just the way he was raised and the way he was wired. But, you know, we'll see. It's a, it's a long path forward. But I, I think we had a terrific process and pretty hopeful that the outcome is good. I'm sure you've experienced a number of firsts this year in this job, one of which was being in the big chair for the trade deadline. You ended up not making any major moves. What was that two- or three-week or four-week process leading up to the deadline first time in this job like for you? Yeah, it's, it's informative. Um, you know, there, there are uh, so many conversations that happen, um, and um, 90% of them, 99% of them leave nowhere. But you get some information out of all the conversations that you have. Um, and in our position, we weren't going to just trade players just to trade them if we really didn't feel like the return was going to um, advance our, our strategic goals of kind of elevating the whole overall level of talent in the organization. Um, you know, the, the one pending free agent that we had that was a, a trade chip, we did trade, but the guys that we didn't trade are, remain under control and on the team and are nice players to have. And so we want to be a little bit more careful with, with moving them. But um, it, it was a challenge this year in that, um, you know, new to the organization, uh, not the uh, infrastructure that you'd want or will that we will have going forward, and so um, you know you're 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 dealing with a, a little less um, organization and information that, that you want when you're making decisions like that. You went through a couple of hundred lost seasons in Houston when you first got there. Even though you understand that losing is going to happen at the start of a rebuilding process like this, when you go through a season like this, does it wear on you? Oh yeah, it's really it's tough. I mean the. You, the you see how hard the players work and the coaching staff works, um, and you want to win as much as possible. And the um, you know the, when the team wins, I'm in a good mood, and when the team loses, I'm in a bad mood. And um, the coaching staff at the major league level, even though intellectually they understand where we're at, you know they they still spend so many hours a day preparing for that night's game. And even if it's not their fault, they feel like it, it was a failure when they lose that night's game. So it's tough, and it it does um, test. You know your uh, metal, um, and I think that's why um, Brandon's experience um, and front office perspective will be helpful for him. You know, kind of knowing what's on the other end of the rainbow and understanding that you know we all understand um, that this team is going to go through some lumps. Were there any lessons that you took from those first few years at Houston that you've been able to bring with you here as you go through a similar process? I, I hope so. I mean, obviously the, the patience, um, but it, it takes some toughness. This stuff isn't easy. Um, things go poorly. Um, and, you know, you get you get some, some bad turns. Um, and, you know, it, it, it requires some, some thick skin and some, um, you know, confidence in the, in the direction um, and, and some patience. And I, I think everyone in the organization needs to understand that. Um, and we... We did a really good job of, of uh, keeping our eye on the ball in Houston through some some tough times, um, but uh, you know certainly it's toughest on the, the major league manager and, and and the GM. You've let about twenty five people in various roles go during the past month. You mentioned you're going to be doing a lot of hiring in the, in the coming weeks and months. When you took over, did you have a vision of the type of operation you wanted to put together? And does it take a year to kind of evaluate what you have and who, who you've, you've inherited? Well. Um, I, I knew coming from Houston um, where we had just undergone quite a bit of, of uh, restructuring to position ourselves for the landscape, the information landscape, the technological landscape that exists today in baseball. I knew what that looked like, and it wasn't something that we just um, winged it. We put a ton of study into it. Um, we had outside help uh, take a look at, at how a, a baseball operations department should structure itself, what's needed, how to um, apportion resources. And so I really, coming off of that experience, fresh off that experience, had an idea of what um, today's front office can and, and should look like. Um, so I was prepared for that change, um, but you know, certainly um, some of it is personnel-based. And um, you know we're we're in a um, a phase where you know this organization is um, you know going through a, a downturn, and um, you know th there are times when um, you know change and uh, bringing in uh, fresh perspectives, new voices, new new blood um, is uh, the right thing to do. So I think with all of that combined, you know we decided to do this stuff, um, and um, you know it wasn't something that we, we take lightly. 
but um, you know we're looking to the future, and, and this is uh, this is the right course for this organization going forward. When you made the recent changes, you said the organization's in the process of quote adapting to the sport today. This is probably a loaded question that could be its own podcast. But how do you think the sport has changed the most in the past five or ten years? Um, it's information, and it's um, you know a- a- any revolution that has taken place. Um, like it or not, has been, uh, and, and I understand the, um, the, you know, the criticisms of the, the entertainment aspect of the sport being changed and the human element being reduced, and um, I can't say that I'm a fan of it either, but we're in a competitive business and we're trying to win games, um, and um, any one of these changes has been brought on by technology, and even, even the, sort of the quote-unquote money ball, using college stats in the draft um, from the early 2000s, that really wasn't possible until the, the internet um, put those stats out there so easily and so readily and so consistently. And um, it's just an example of these technologies being, or these changes being brought on by technology. And now we have so much in terms of tracking the bat and the ball on the field and the players' bodies um, and, and what they're doing. And there's so much information coming out of that. And um, some teams are starting to figure out ways to really precisely deploy that info to improve players and to win games um, that the, um, the, the skill sets of people that are needed to make decisions, they have to be able to incorporate that, that info and understand it and want to use it and want to find it. Um, it doesn't mean that um, other skill sets that have been around longer are are gone or, or not uh, necessary anymore, but we need to make room for this new skill set too. Last two questions for you. You've gone through your first draft with the Orioles. You've gone through your first international signing period. Did you come away from those two things feeling like you'd accomplished what you wanted to, to, to move forward with this, this process? Yeah. Um, you know, we're trying to raise the overall level of talent in the organization. Those two avenues are the biggest uh, ways that we have and can and will do that. Um, I think we did really well in both counts, especially with the July 2nd with how late of a jump that we got and kind of uh, playing from behind. I still think we got some real good players and got our, our program rolling. Um, but I always remind myself that, um, you know, the Yankees and Red Sox get to draft and sign players too. So, you know, it, while it feels like we're adding talent, other teams are adding talent as well. Um, and, um, you know, it's a, it's a, a tough race. But um, we'll, it's a very important part of what we're doing, and we're going to need to excel in those areas. You were nine months old the last time the Orioles won the World Series or even appeared in one. Having grown up, as we mentioned before, not all that far from here, uh, do you have a sense of what it would mean to bring a title back to Baltimore? I can't even imagine it because um, th- this um, town is amongst the most passionate baseball um, cities I've ever seen, especially now that I live here and really see it up close. Um, the people really love this team, um, and it uh, reminds me probably mo- mostly of St. Louis, of, of any place with the type of connection between the town and its baseball team and the history. And, um, yeah, there's been some, um, some lean years um, we're in a, a, a as tough a division as there is, um, and um, you know I think that that would that would be unbelievable. And, and you know you saw what in, in 2014 um, with the run that they had, uh, the way that the, the stadium was um, going crazy and the and the the, the town uh, rallied behind the team. And I just think it would mean a lot to the city right now to to get this club back to the playoffs in, in some way, shape, or form. But um, you know we're gonna be focused on. Um, the uh, the process to get there, and you know I, I don't know when it's going to happen. Um, I, I can't put a put a number of years on it, but I know what we have to do to get there, and and that's what we're going to worry about. Mike, appreciate your time. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Many thanks to Mike Elias for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. Coming up in our next episode, I'll sit down with Brewers Farm Director Tom Flanagan to discuss his beginnings in Milwaukee's clubhouse, the challenges of scouting the Brewers' resurgence, and much more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand.
It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.